just like um, we were saying before about how rural communities are not monolithic or homogeneous, the same thing can be said about folks in agriculture and especially women in agriculture. And we know that actually women tend to be the largest landowners because so many women actually live, outlive their husbands or, or the men in their family. And so women oftentimes are the landowners. Hello and welcome to Rural Matters. I'm your host, Michelle Rasman. And if you're a first time listener, we're glad you found us. And if you're a return friend of the podcast, thank you again for carving out some time for this important conversation. So no matter how you found us or why you pressed your play button today, we want you to know that our goal is always to produce content that helps increase awareness, inform discussion and promote intelligent dialogue on the most important issues facing rural stakeholders today. Of course, you know you can listen to Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you like to get your podcast. The only thing that we encourage and actually invite you to do is to subscribe so that you'll receive new episodes automatically, which is really convenient for a multiple-part series such as the one that you're listening to today. So speaking of series, today we are going to continue with our four-part series, the final episode. of these two really important issues that have been facing rural America, in my opinion, for far too long. Uh, The series is called Poverty and Policies, and it's been developed in collaboration with and underwritten by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. In the first two episodes, which we hope you listened to earlier this month, we focused on deeply disadvantaged counties in rural America, where poverty is rooted in their history and tragically still ever-present today. In the third episode of this series, the one just prior to this, we discussed the rural issues that will likely surface for voters in the 2020 elections. Now, today in this final episode in the series, we'll continue this Rural Matters conversation. And of course, if you're paying attention, um, this election season is unlike any other in American history. It's a time when everyone, and certainly this includes rural America, is dealing with a deadly pandemic, uh, abysmal economic hardship, And of course, as a nation, we're addressing social injustice and inequality. We have a lot to talk about. And as I've said, nobody tunes in here just to hear me ask myself questions. So I'm elated to welcome our three truly outstanding guests today who will help us, you know, put all these issues into context. So first, I want to say I'm really excited to have uh, Dee Davis join us for this conversation. Um, I kind of noted to Dee, I was a little bit nervous about uh, having him on the show because I've really been a follower of his work. Uh, Dee Davis is the founder and president of the Center for Rural Strategies. He has helped design and lead national public information campaigns on topics as diverse as commercial television programming and federal banking policy. He is the chair of the National National Rural Assembly Steering Committee, a member of the Rural Advisory Committee of the Local uh, Initiative Support Corporation, Fund for Innovative Television, and Feral Arts of Brisbane, Australia, which is very interesting. He is also a member of the Institute for Rural Journalism's National Advisory Board and the former chair of the board of directors of Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation. Welcome, Dee, to the podcast. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to be here. Thank you. And so I'm also very pleased, I've been, been exciting uh, to have her on um, the program. Paku Hung is a graduate from Yale University, where she studied political science and specifically focused on revolutions in Latin America. She also earned a master's from the University of Minnesota in political science with specialties in political psychology and voting behavior. That's so interesting to me. Among her many impressive roles, Paku served as the election protection director for the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Party, the National Field Director for Children's Defense Fund, and ran for office herself, albeit unsuccessfully, but unapologetically, for many years. Peku 
has served as a trainer for Wellstone Action, New American Leaders, and Vote Run Lead, which is how I first uh, learned about the organization and why she uh, is as with us today. So welcome, Paku, to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for the invitation, Michelle. And then finally, but uh, last but not least, we're so pleased to have Jonathan Rodden on the uh, podcast with us today. Jonathan has been with a guest with us before. He's a professor of political science at Stanford University and the author of Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. His research focuses on political institutions, geography, and representation around the world. Um, so many wonderful things that you've written and contributed to. Jonathan, thank you for coming back and joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, thank you. And I know you're on a road trip, so we really do appreciate that. Dee, I'm going to start with you because I, uh, you know, I, it's something I asked in the last podcast, but I, because you're such a straightforward guy, I want to ask you this question. Does the rural vote matter? And as I ask that question, I'm thinking about what's happening in Kentucky today, for example, with your primary. So, um, does the rural sure. matter? Well, it's a couple of things. It, you know, if you're in a rural community, of course it matters to you. But um, we often frame these questions around presidential elections. And um, since Bill Clinton was the last uh, Democrat to win in rural America, there's there's a kind of assumption that it doesn't matter. Don't contest it, and uh, that the Republicans are going to win. And um, um, the last attention you can call to rural voters might mean that uh, they won't be as active. But the reality is that it's all in the margins that um, Barack Obama in 2008 lost the rural swing states, you know, Ohio and New Mexico. He lost the voters in the swing states by seven points and had two houses of Congress follow that, that if if um, you have a situation then like Hillary Clinton lost rural in the extreme uh, and even though she won the mega cities by more than any Democrat had ever won them. Her, her margins in rural really determined that election. So, um, in close elections, um, there are a lot of reasons, and there's a lot of uh, factors you can point to as making the difference. But certainly, if you look at those those um, margins in rural areas, it's pretty determinative. I mean, Right now, you have um, Trump only winning the rural vote, the whole, not the swing states, but the whole national rural vote by nine points. That's that's a uh, perilous place for him to be in. If he can't ramp up those numbers, uh, he's got uh, almost impossible uh, road to hoe. And then in in Kentucky, it's. Uh, we're in a crazy mm. primary, one that we've never really seen before. Kentucky's not an uh, easy state to vote in, but because of the pandemic, we moved our primary back a month, and all of a sudden the Republican Secretary of State and the Democratic governor got together and created a one-time only set of reforms where uh, people can vote 
by mail. They can vote early, no excuse absentee ballots. And so in the middle of a pandemic, we're kind of on schedule to have maybe uh, the largest uh, participation we've had in a primary uh, ever. So we'll see. Uh, it'll be a week before we know who wins, probably. So it, there'll be a lot of time for uh, angst and gnashing of teeth later. But right now it looks good. Yeah, it, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I read this morning that 883,000 ballots were requested. And by Monday afternoon, which was just yesterday, uh, 452,000 were already uh, mailed in. So that's a really good uh, stopping point right there. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to bring you back in because you look at you look at uh, elections differently than I think most people because of your research. Uh, I want you to talk to us a little bit about um, the issue that I think is probably going to be on most every voter's mind, in particular rural, uh, is economic relief. So you talk about the fact that rural has actually never fully recovered from the last recession. And so even if Congress comes to an agreement on another package of fiscal relief for the state and local governments, um, big and lasting revenue losses for state and local governments are inevitable at this point, really. So what are the implications of these cuts for urban versus rural America? Um, if you could kind of put that into context for us. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about it and, and kind of staring at some data recently. And I think a lot of us, you know, when we think about cuts to uh, to budgets of state and local governments, you know, in the media, we just that it, people immediately start talking about big cities. Um, uh, you know, it's, and it's it's uh, it's easy. I guess it's easy to understand why they do that. Uh, but if you really look at um, if you really look at the public sector and you look at the places that uh, where the public sector makes up the largest part of the local economy, it's really rural areas. Um, the the public sector, as you know, as the private sector in rural places uh, has 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 gotten smaller, especially as uh, manufacturing activity has moved away. Um, the public sector becomes a larger and larger share. It's where it's like sometimes thirty or forty percent of uh, local employment, and it's even a larger share of of income because often the public sector jobs are the best paying jobs in town. Uh, and so what happened in the last recession uh, is there were, you know, there were big cuts in uh, public sector employment and big cuts in government in general at the state and local sector. Uh, and so those cuts were bigger as a share of the total in the rural places. And you kind of you look at the impact of those and they seem to have had a lasting impact because those jobs didn't really come back. Mm -hmm. They've only started to come back in some places. Uh, and so that was a big that was a big, you know, I think that it was easier for urban places to have more diversified economies to uh, to react to that. Um, but the rural places had a very hard time recovering and we're, we're facing probably another another big uh, setback of that kind to uh, state and local employment. And so um, I expect that that will have a big impact on rural areas once again. Yeah, I, I suspect that is true. And Peku, I'm going to kind of turn to you because um, I think. One of the things that we fall, you know, we fall victim to, if you will, you know, when we take a look at it, I, I live in an area where if you go 40 miles um, east of me, it's very urban. And then just eight or 10 miles west of me, it's it's quite rural. Um, I want to have you kind of clear up some of the, the myths and misperceptions about rural communities. And, you know, are they are they homogenous or all white? And how does reality impact the 2020 elections? What do you see in your work with Vote Run Lee where diversity is concerned in that regard? 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for that um, question, Michelle. And um, based on my work and our experience of work on leave, and also what the academics are studying, we know that um, there has been a trend now where rural populations and rural communities are declining. Mm. And the one element that's really um, stopping that free flow or that free fall um, are immigrants. And so there's this myth um, that rural communities are not only homogenous, but they're monolithic. They think the same way. And I, I just don't think that's the truth. And while um, the white population still accounts for the majority of the population in rural communities, they are increasing, increasingly becoming more diversified. Um, and I think that's really interesting, especially at this moment, because, um, you know, quintessentially when we go to vote, we're always asking, um, you know, am I better off than I was the last time that I voted? And just like what you said, Michelle, right now we are in the middle of um, great anxiety and fear around COVID or the economy or the racial and economic injustices that we're seeing. And um, political psychologists often look at situations like this and they say when voters feel this way, there are two types of reactions. They can either get bogged down by that anxiety and fear and, the, and they, they paralyze and they don't, they don't act or that fear turns into anger and that anger actually fuels action mm-hmm. and engagement and voting. And we've been seeing this in Wisconsin. You just um, reference it in Kentucky, that people are angry and that anger is turning into voting and, and voter engagement. And for me, I think that's really interesting because when you layer that over the um, diversification that's happening, albeit small, but diversification that is happening in rural communities, you're gonna, it's going to be interesting to see who wins that. Because right now, voters are getting an opportunity to decide what type of leaders they want going forward. And that just might be different from the type of leaders they've been having. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you this because, uh, you know, I think maybe you have a great point, because I think what's happening, you know, this the energy behind this might be underestimated. And so, Jonathan, something that I read from you is, you know, Republican elites need to thread a very different needle because their supporters are increasingly dependent on transfers from cities, even though it's, you know, rather indirect and non-transparent. So, you know, just in terms of what's on uh, rural voters' minds with respect to, you know, kind of putting on a shelf some of their beliefs about, you know, uh, uh, the Republicans, where they think rural voters' minds are at, at, just based on your research. I'm wondering if you can expand on that just a bit. Yeah, it just kind of follows from what we were talking about earlier. Um, if we if we you know, we just look at the trends over time, uh, maybe in the '70s or early '80s, if this wasn't really the case, but over time, it's become you know as as um, uh, you know poverty has grown in rural areas, um, and, and as the pri- private sector activity has declined, uh, we've seen a growing dependence uh, you know for for funding the public sector and also just transfers to individuals. Um, if we look at those things as a share of the local economy, they're, they're becoming larger over time at, at exactly the same time that these places have become increasingly dominated by, by Republican um, votes for Republican candidates. So if you're one of those Republican candidates, it's, it becomes a bit difficult because the rhetoric of the party is very much anti-government. Mm-hmm. But the communities that are being represented are, are often the communities that are they're really the most dependent on, on government. Although, as you point out, it's very it's very non-transparent kind of, of flow. It's the kind of thing where, you know, in a, in a, in a community that gets uh, that has a, a uh, kind of a smaller state supported university in some of those, you know, that that really 
um, you can kind of see it in the data that really makes up a large share of employment. And a lot of the local businesses are, are also uh, reliant on, on the kind of fiscal flows that flow into those kinds of institutions. Um, and, and, and just the funding that comes from urban taxpayers that really support uh, the public sector more generally in these areas. So it becomes a bit difficult to, to kind of at the same time have a very strongly anti-government um, uh, uh, rhetoric uh, when, when many of the programs that you might want to end up cutting once in office are programs that your voters uh, benefit from. So it becomes, you know, in the places like Kansas, this becomes, uh, this becomes difficult uh, needle to, to thread. That paradox, right, of actually having or electing leaders who are anti-government, but actually increasingly relying on, on government services and government as part of the economy, that paradox defies logic, which for me makes even more clear that, that these issues are not logical issues and the way people think and vote are not necessarily logical, but they're cultural. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in this moment, in this historical moment where our culture is really being broken up, and people are trying to attempt to reimagine what um, what a fair economy or fair society or fair democracy would look like. That to me is really interesting. Then as prelude to the November election, you know, we haven't been in really like in a in a moment like this before, right? The convergence of, of the pandemic, of the civil rights movement, you know, of a free fall economy. So I think that this is really cultural, and that's why November is going to be interesting. Yeah, it's great points. And, you know, I want to hear from you because, you know, one of the questions I have is why do people vote the way that they do? And I think that to your point, Paco, I mean, there's some kind of a conflict sometimes between, you know, the way we think and what we know. And then I always say it's what we think, what we know, what we feel. And when we feel something, we take action. But so, Dee, you know, based on what you're hearing, why, in your opinion, and do people vote the way that they do in all your experience? I think Paiku has it right. I mean, I think people vote culturally. They vote their family. They vote their neighborhood, their church. They vote uh, the way the people they shoot pool with vote, the way the women in the hair salon they go to vote. That the process of voting is, is one where it's driven by their own sense of identity and their own sense of belonging to a group. And that's, and that's, and that's more determinative than, um, you know, uh, issues or um, other factors that, that people, uh, that pollsters go after. Usually the one uh, question, the poll that will give you the most insight into how someone's going to vote is uh, the question about cares about people like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really a process of representing myself and people like me. That's so interesting. Uh, we are going to take a quick break um, so that I can duly acknowledge our 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 underwriter and partners for this particular podcast. When we come back, we're going to get right back to the discussion. And uh, I think I'm going to go back to you, Paku, think about this before we come back, because I I want to get into the vote run lead. And in particular, I want to talk to you about women in agriculture, because we know agriculture has been hit very hard and not just because of the pandemic. So sit tight. We'll be right back. We want to give a very special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for collaborating with us and sponsoring not only this episode, but all four episodes this month in our four-part series. 
We are proud to have the support of and to collaborate again this year with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropy dedicated solely to health. Since 1972, RWJF has supported research and programs charting some of America's most pressing health issues from substance abuse to improving access to quality health care. The foundation is committed to ensuring that everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity to achieve better health wherever they live, learn, work, and play. Find out more about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. That's rwjf.org or on Twitter at rwjf. And now let's get back to our discussion. Okay, we are back and we're having a discussion about the uh, issues that will likely impact uh, the rural vote in 2020. And uh, we're back with Paku Hung, and she is with an organization called Vote Run Lead. And uh, real quickly, for folks that don't understand what the, what your, the organization you're representing today, um, can you just give us a little sense about the platform and what the mission is? And then I want to talk to you just a bit about women in agriculture and what you think they're feeling about the upcoming election, because I think it's such an important to- uh, topic for us to touch on. Wonderful. So Vote Run Lead is a national organization. Our mission is to train women to run for public office and to win. And um, since our inception, we have trained over 30,000 women to run for public office. Um, 30% of those women are in rural communities. And in the last uh, presidential cycle, or after um, 2016, um, of the women who we train to run for public office and decided to run for public office, over 70% of them actually won. And so I think um, to your question, Michelle, and also to Jonathan's point, um, this is a really unique moment. And I remember in the beginning of the summer, I was talking to some pollsters, and they were saying about how um, in the past, women candidates were viewed unfavorably if they were overly competent, if they were focused on consistency issues or on the community. That was actually a negative. But in the time of COVID, all those things were actually positive and actually what drew um, voters to those candidates, just like what Johnson said about people voting for the candidate they felt um, would, would most support them. And um, that's what Vote Run Lead is, is, is trying to do, is to get women to run, um, but not run in a different way, but run as their authentic self. We often talk about um, our model of run as you are because you're enough. And um, we also know that the lived experiences of women um, inform a different type of leadership style. You know, studies have shown that women um, in government uh, act differently. They're more civil to each other. They're more collaborative. They uh, promote and pass policies that are more focused on the most vulnerable in our community. And we think that's the type of leadership that we need in our democracy right now. Yeah, um, that, but that, that, that's a really interesting point, because I just want to say, you know, and gosh, across the board, I have questions for all of you, because at the end of the day, when we're taking a look at kind of the way traditional, the way people traditionally voted, um, I actually have done some work, um, you know, D, you probably know the folks at the Kentucky Office of Rural Health, and I've done a lot of work down there, and I've sat at roundtables just having these discussions, and historically, women around the table have told me, you know, that they, 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 they their mothers vote if they did vote was with their husbands and so forth. But as I'm having more of these conversations across the country, that is just no longer the case. And I think 
that movements that you're speaking of really make make a difference. But real quickly, before we move on, please touch on, uh, Paku, if you would, about women in agriculture and what they're thinking and feeling. Because, you know, I think maybe five years ago, we might not have even asked this question about women in agriculture. I don't think people understand how much they, you know, the representation there. What are they thinking as this upcoming election uh, draws near? Good question, Michelle. And I think just like um, we were saying before about how rural communities are not monolithic or homogeneous. The same thing is um, can be said about folks in agriculture and especially women in agriculture. And we know that actually women tend to be the 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 largest landowners because so many women actually live outlive their husbands or or the men in their family. And so women oftentimes are the landowners, but they may not necessarily be the ones working on the land. But we know that even if that's the case, women tend to be more interested in soil health and in an integrated ecosystem. And they're very interested in nutrition and how the food or the, um, the, the type of crop that's grown, how that actually interacts with the community. And right now, women in agriculture, I think it is really a a moment of reckoning. Um, women in rural communities and women in agriculture, so, you know, double layered, have been facing for time and number um, the patriarchy and the patriarchy um, has has tried to really diminish women but they're finding that through social media or through networks they're able to come together and not only elect um, other women to um, public office but other women to you know um, farmer union chapters or to um, you know certain type of um, a water and soil boards and so that thinking, that more integrated um, ecosystem way of thinking, I think is really um, is, is really making way into these positions of power. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Jonathan, I, I want to jump over to you for a moment because of all the work that, you know, the geography work that you do fascinates me. And one of the things that um, I think are important to touch on is that I think people might be surprised, um, maybe not, that some of the the, the very recent uh, protests that we're seeing and so forth, that that is, um, you know, it's not just it's not central and urban. We are seeing more and more and more of this activity happening in our small towns. Um, and if you could just touch on just from your perspective, maybe this is not something we would have seen a decade ago, most certainly. What do you think contributes to um the, the social protest happening in, in parts of the country that historically might not be participants uh, in these activities. We didn't see such a widespread um, set of protest activities uh, back in 2014 uh, with the, the Ferguson protests. Mm-hmm. Those were much more concentrated in, in big cities. And it just fascinated me to see how much this uh, movement has, has uh, touched smaller towns. Uh, and, and so, I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't been able to really look at this very carefully yet. But one of the things that, that seems clear is, is that um, you know, many of these communities that are that we, where we've seen the sizable uh, protests are communities that have had African-American populations ever since the Great Migration. Uh, when, when industrial activity and industrial jobs picked up in the north uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and people people moved to take those jobs. You know, when African Americans moved from the South to take those jobs, they weren't just in places like Detroit, but they were in places like Jackson, Michigan, and Ohio, and Bryan, Ohio, and uh, all of these kind of small industrial towns. Uh, Kankakee, Illinois, all of these places have um, historic, you know, they have long-standing black communities. 
uh, and those communities have really been uh, have been activated. Um, but you know, you can also look at some of these protests uh, in places like Edwardsville, Illinois. And you look at the at who's out on the streets, and while there are some African Americans, and most of the people who are out there are whites. Um, and uh, you know, so some of those communities have uh, have. Uh, Universities, and that's the case in, in Edwardsville, um, um, and and so this is kind of you know an example of just the, the concentration of Democrats and, uh, and and liberals in college towns. But I think there's even more to it than that, uh, in that this set of issues has become increasingly central to the the Democratic Party, and these are places you know ma- many kind of the, the the downtown area of many many towns is, is uh, when you really drill down into the precinct level data, even though the county might be red, um, many times this small uh, kind of, you know, area around the courthouse and the, the uh, rental housing and so forth around the town square, are mostly very democratic places. Um, you've got a lot of uh, you know, teachers unions and other public sector unions and people who are, are really pretty core uh, supporters of the democratic party. And this set of issues has become more and more important. It's been more, you know, become more a part of what it is to be a Democrat. And so this is true uh, for, for whites in, in many of these communities. And so all those things are not just true of urban Democrats, but they're true of Democrats in these uh, in these towns that are spread out throughout, uh, you know, what we think of as as more rural places. So it's kind of bringing back that, that uh, one of the one of the themes here is that these places are a lot more heterogeneous than we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and their voting behavior is really uh, more heterogeneous as well. I was just kind of just wanted to get back to the earlier thinking of, you know, the first question. Is does the rural vote matter, um, and you know, is it is it does it kind of shift around from one election to another? And I think in a place like Ohio, that's that's very clear that these communities that I've been mentioning, um, these are places that vote uh, overwhelmingly for Sherrod Brown in, in Senate elections uh, and voted for Trump in uh, presidential elections. So uh, these are places that are there's a lot more once you really drill down and kind of stop looking at county level data and drill down to precincts and and census block groups and really uh, focus on what's happening at the micro level, you see a lot more heterogeneity and a lot more uh, variety uh, of, of beliefs and political behavior out in what people refer to as rural America. Yeah. Let, me, let me add to uh, what Jonathan said there. I, I live in a small town, 1,500 uh people, almost all white. And, you know, there was a, there was a demonstration for George Floyd out uh, in the courthouse steps in a march. And there were 200 people showed up and um, people who I'm pretty sure never been to Minneapolis or Houston uh, were chanting George Floyd's name and and were giving speeches and talking about the injustice of the situation. And that was true. And all these little uh, Cofield towns um, up and down um, the mountain ridges. And, and I think that um, it might, you know, I'm in a county that's registered three to one Democrat and voted four to one for Trump. I, I think that we may not see um, the uh, the the marches and the the response to uh, the civil rights movement reflected in the next election, but we're but these vectors change quickly, and the first steps are when communities begin to come together around things that matter. Yeah, I, 
it's great that you mentioned that, Dee, because my next question to you, I mean, I'm I'm very encouraged. Um, obviously, you know, it's painful. It's necessary for us to be having these conversations because at the end of the day, I, I think what we're seeing so much is a cry for a po- changes in policy. So, Dee, how does policy influence voting, um, the rural vote in particular? <laughs> Uh, I would say not much. <laughs> I, I think that, um, you know, I, I've got two rules when I talk to campaign. If if they say um, the people are with us on the issues, I think, oh, that's a campaign in trouble. And if they say uh, we're going to win if uh, if our young people come out and vote, then, you know, that's a campaign that's beat. So, um, you know, the reality is that people vote for who they like and who reflects their community. And that doesn't mean they don't care about policy, but, it, you know, so much of uh, of uh, the conversation in Kentucky, for example, was, God, everybody likes Obamacare, but they voted for Trump. You know, it, people, people put a firewall between policy and government that they have less and less faith in and people in the way that they see people as um, agents of change or response. I, I wanted to totally agree that I think people vote not based on policy, but based on values. And there is a candidate shares the values. And I think what's interesting about this moment is that our values are truly being questioned. I think that's why you're seeing the um, the outpour, even if it's not as robust in urban areas, you're seeing the outpour um, and, and reckoning in, in rural, rural communities around George Floyd's murder or around COVID or um, even wearing the mask. And this all makes me think of my friend Sue Hawks. And I remember her because I trained her, gosh, it must have been maybe 15, 16 years ago. And we trained her um, up in up um, up in um, uh, northern Minnesota, which is um, we call it the Iron Range, but it's the place where like these families, generations of families, were miners. It's really tough, really like the quintessential kind of patriarchal society. And I remember I was training this woman. She's an older woman, and she's a taco. I'm just I'm just a real estate agent, you know. And she's like, I don't even know why I was here. I remember this so clear. I don't even know why I'm here, but you know, I'm really upset. What's happening in my town? And something's got to change. And at the end of that training, she decided she was going to run. A couple of cycles later, she ran for mayor of her city. She won. She was mayor for a number of cycles. And then she decided actually what she cared about were um, issues that were really more focused on human services. So she ran for county commissioner. And now she's county commissioner of this um, huge county in northeastern Minnesota. And so that awakening that happened for Sue, um, I think, is what's happening right now. And that's why for me, even though these times are really dark, I'm really excited about what could happen um, in November. Yeah, I think it's a, a, an excellent point because we you know, we so often focus on presidential elections, but what we have to really take a look at it is it starts where you live. And there's one more thing. What, gosh, I have so many questions that I, I want to ask you all. Unfortunately, we don't have all that much time, but I do want to just touch a little bit on economic vitality in rural communities and depending on immigrant labor. Now, as we are seeing 
you know, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it. I have, I work with hospitals all around the country and many of the rural hospitals I work with are in those areas where there are meatpacking plants, for example. And so, Paku, I would like, and any one of you who want to address this as well, I just want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, does the economic vitality of many rural communities depend on immigrant labor? You know, this is another very hot button topic uh, that we hear so much about. Uh, so I'd like to just get some insight from you on that particular question. Yeah, I think, you know, oh, my gosh, um, this is like the question you asked before about, um, you know, this being a moment of reckoning for voters and mm-hmm. It, we, we are seeing that, like I said before, um, rural communities are decreasing in their population trends. So there are more deaths than there are births. And the one thing that is stopping that freefall are immigrants. And immigrants are moving to rural communities for economic opportunities. They're not stealing jobs. They're actually doing the work that no one else in that rural community wants to do. And those are the jobs like the poultry factories and the meat processing factories. And, um, and they're, they're the ones that are, are um, milking the cows and all the dairy farmers that are supposed to be quintessential Americans, right? Well, the majority of dairy farm workers now are uh, Latinos. And so immigrant labor is definitely um, vital to the vitality of a rural community. Now, the question is going to be whether rural communities are willing to own that and whether they're going to work forward and um, see um, their neighbors, even though they may look different from them uh, and speak a different language, see the abounded future, or whether um, the voters are going to look backwards and try to um, just vote as, as, you know, the nostalgia of the community that used to be, even though that's not the reality anymore. So, yeah, absolutely. Immigrant labor is critical to the voter of the rural community. The question is whether they're willing to step up. A very, very good point. Do you, let me just ask you before we close out here, in your opinion, um, you know, how do we make democracy better. I read a really fascinating paper yesterday by Catherine Ferguson out of the Aspen Institute. And we we talk a lot about, you know, maybe tongue in cheek, people say, I can't wait to get back to normal. And I've said this many times, I think normal is lazy, <laughs> because normal for so many communities around this country, um, it, it won't end well. I mean, we as we talked about in this series with respect to poverty, for example. Um, so rather than try and go back to normal, how do we make democracy? democracy better. We are at a time we're in an election year, an epic election year. What in your opinion will make that happen? I was going to say I think Dee said that already when he talked about Kentucky and how in a one time off, right, the, the the governor and and the folks in leadership came together and they said we're gonna have vote by mail, we're gonna have early voting, we're gonna have um, you know, no no fault or no reason absentee uh, voting. Those are democratic reforms that we need to examine because those are the things that make our democracy more representative. And when our democracy is more representative, it's gonna be more robust and that is is gonna, you know, um, make us more resilient. What 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 could you add to that, Dee? I think everywhere we're seeing people who think democracy uh, is in a perilous position that um, you've got something like 30 percent of Americans under 40 who say it's not critical or vital that they live in a democracy. I think there's some there's some real perception problems and there's some real execution problems. I've just served for two years on a commission on the practice of democratic citizenship and and um 
we came forward with a series of recommendations about how to make voting easier, how to make it more representative, how to begin to move away from the pernicious influence of um, uh, special interest money. Um, and I, th- I think there, there's several remedies that we can go to if we're ready. Sometimes we're just so discouraged. We think that this is the way it it is. That's the way it has been. And there's nothing we can do to change it. But there are there are ways to fix the Electoral College. There are ways to fix um, uh, outside uh, interest money coming into politics. There there are ways to make voting simpler mm-hmm. and to make our uh, uh, representative really work for more people but you know it takes it takes us screwing up our courage and and demanding it and uh, people who have power now are not going to give up without a fight without a fight that's a, a wonderful uh, note and and I, I say very often we have the way what we need to search for is the collective will to move it forward I I cannot thank the three of you enough for closing out this series so Jonathan Peku D it's been such a pleasure talking with all three of you what a wonderful panel that this has been um, at this point I do want to acknowledge and thank our real matters marketing partners they are so essential for this podcast to help us elevate this message. And they are the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, as well as AASA, the School Superintendents Association, and the National Rural Assembly, of course, the National Branch, and the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health. We have so many wonderful outlets to share this uh, message um, with our rural stakeholders out there. So if you would like more information on the rural issues that we've talked about today, if you have a guest or a topic, please just email us at podcast2, that's the number two day at gmail.com. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Real Matters Pod or me personally at MRB Impact. As always, we'd appreciate it if you would rate this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues, uh, Real Matters is produced by Michael Levin Epstein. I thank him for that. I thank you for listening as always, and we will talk to you next time on Real Matters. Mm-hmm.